Greetings, everyone. Welcome to Keep Calm and Carry On. I'm your host, Daniel Paris. As uh, many of you know, my tagline, as it were, in uh, much of my shorter form work on social media is history matters. And of course, as a historian operating in the financial markets, I necessarily take the long view in regard to both investing and writing about the markets. That's why I'm so delighted to have as my guest today, Edward Macquarie. He's a retired professor of business at Santa Clara University. In his retirement, Ed has produced some important scholarship that highlights why history matters when we are making investment decisions. Ed, uh, thanks so much for agreeing to be on the show. Oh, the, the, the thanks are to you, Daniel. This is a, I rarely get an opportunity to talk about these things. So please, uh, let's go. Yep. The next 30 minutes are yours. So I know you're not a financial advisor. You're not making any uh, near-term predictions about performance or asset classes, but the work that you've written and, and conducted and the work that we're going to discuss really does, I would argue, have implications for investors thinking about their asset allocations, stocks versus bonds, cash, et cetera, and their expectations going forward. We're coming up on a year end. Uh, individuals will be meeting with their financial advisors. They'll tally a year's results. They'll look forward. We have all sorts of factors affecting expectations, interest rates, inflation, stock market returns. It's a good time and a relevant time, I suppose always, but the year end is one of those instances when people should be thinking about, certainly professionals in the industry, thinking about asset allocation and uh, expected returns. And there's a whole industry of asset allocation, as I'm sure you're aware of. And there are formulas. Most retail investors can go on to Schwab or Fidelity or Vanguard. They're going to take a risk quiz. They're going to have their conversation with their advisor. And the appropriate risk measurement of stocks and bonds will be spit out by that. It's very important, I, I would argue, because we're on the, the verge of an, uh, an a regime change. That's your term, not so much mine. I refer to it as a paradigm shift. But uh, with interest rates no longer going down, there's a reasonable, I think reasonable people will agree, even if they disagree on other things, that we're heading towards a, a potential regime change. So your historical work challenges the math underpinning many of the assumptions that are built into the financial services industry right now. Let's, so let's jump into it. Uh, assumption one, risk and reward uh, the more risk you take, the more reward you get. Uh, bonds are safer than stocks, so lower reward. There's an equity risk premium, and I, I'll ask you to define that. Most of my audience will already know, but we'll go through it. And as a consequence of the equity risk program, uh, equity risk premium, stocks naturally return more than bonds. Stocks can be considered a risk asset. High quality bonds and government securities are considered a risk control or a much less risky asset. That's what faces every investor right now, That those assumptions. Can you tell us where those assumptions came from? A lot of our investors will know of those assumptions. They won't know the history of those assumptions. And I think knowing the history of those assumptions is really important as investors make, make these decisions. Let's tell it in terms of uh, four dates. The first date everybody knows, and it's a crucial one for that advice that you're talking about, and it's the famous 1926. Okay. The second date that uh, almost as many of your listeners will recognize is 1896, the beginning of the Dow Jones Industrial Average. And now I'm going to start winnowing through your audience a little bit when I say 1871. Uh, 1871 and Robert Schiller, uh, the Nobel economist, go together. Uh, it's generally the um, 
the terminal horizon for asset history uh, as most investors have encountered it over the past couple of decades. The fourth and final year is 1793. Uh, I've got stock and bond data back to 1793. So if you will, I've exploded the 1871 horizon, I've exploded the 1896 horizon, and I've exploded the 1926 horizon. Now, why does it matter? Uh, the uh, orthodoxy that you articulated there, stocks are this, bonds are that, uh, you know, you can expect to make an extra, you can expect to make, uh, this is where Jeremy Siegel comes in, you can expect to make six to 7% real on stocks over the long term, uh, can't fail, all good. Bonds, bonds, bonds are way behind. That's the notion of the equity risk premium. Uh, your typical financial advisor will confidently turn to his or, his or her clients and say, well, you know, you're going to do three to 4% better per year in stocks than bonds. So you got to decide uh, how much risk you're going to save and how much a return you're going to go for. That's your allocation. That's the risk questionnaire that you mentioned. Now, what happened in 1926? That's the beginning of the stocks, bonds, bills, and inflation yearbook, the go-to source for most financial advisors as to what to expect from stocks or bonds. And the answer here, and this is the one of the most important things that I can educate your audience on, nothing happened in 1926. It is an absolutely arbitrary beginning date. What happened was the people behind uh, SBBI, as I'll call it, stocks, bonds, bills, and inflation, they were doing their work in the early 1960s. They had a grant. They'd gotten back to the mid-1920s. They had to get back beyond the Great Depression, but they ran out of money. And so the beginning of time, the beginning of financial time is December 1925. So we'll just stop there just for a moment to let, uh, again, some people know this is Lorian Fisher. Uh, it's become institutionalized as where the good data starts in 1926 for stock returns. It's uh, where a CRISP eventually goes to. CRISP is a, a database that academics have access to that those of us in industry practitioners do not, though I did manage to to, to get a little bit of access to Chris, I'm pleased to say. So that's where most, uh, it, it, those of you looking at your uh, sell-side material and material from the uh, brokerages and institutional material, you'll see a lot of charts, white papers coming from my industry that have a 1926 starting date. Prior to 1964, even that material really, the, there were precursors, but in terms of widely distributed information that didn't exist. Now it's 1926 to the present where we see a lot of so-called good information. That's great. It's almost a century, but it's missing more than a century. And that's where you go back. That's right. And so let's see, I'm going to try and continue this uh, date story unless you steer me uh, in a different direction, Daniel. So uh, 1896, you know, in the old days, a lot of people don't have access to CRISP even now. Uh, uh, secret hint for your audience, uh, uh, the Vanguard Total Stock Market Index tracks uh, CRISP. So if you want to see uh, the last 10 years or so of uh, total stock market returns, you just grab one of their annual reports. That's their benchmark. Uh, 
we go back to 1896, and this was, you know, the Dow. Remember, it used to be all about the Dow Jones average. What is this S&P thing? Uh, that's a Johnny-come-lately. And so the Dow Jones Industrial Average started in 1896, and it was the original historical source. There was a big problem. Dividends were never tracked, okay? So it was always a price index. And it's dollar-weighted, not uh, any. it's not average-weighted, it's not market-cap-weighted, it's nothing-weighted, and no dividends. I don't even know why the Dow Jones Industrial Average is even referenced today. Excuse me for my soapbox comment. Uh, historical inertia. Uh, but be that as it may, the important thing I want to convey is the Dow Jones Industrial Average, an extra 30 years now over CRISP, started at the bottom of what used to be called the Great Depression. Uh, a lot of competitors for that title. 1930s holds the baton today, but before the 1930s, the 1890s were the Great Depression. So when you see Dow Jones Index capital appreciation returns, remember the anchor, the bottom of the first Great Depression. Okay. Now, um, the, your... Um, Ever since Robert Schiller started working uh, this field, you can get really good stock market return data back to 1871. Uh, a fellow named Cowles, who Fisher and Laura didn't even know about, even though he worked at Chicago too, uh, put together something very similar to the S&P index all the way back to 1871. And, um, you know, uh, the Civil War is over. Uh, the United States is rising to its position of hegemony. Stocks did really well in the 1870s, 80s uh, as well. So still a happy, happy picture. But Schiller has a bond return, but it isn't what it seems to be. Because government bonds after the Civil War were not what they are today. So that asset allocation test, how does stocks do relative to bonds, uh, uh, is totally messed up from 1871 to 1920. So let's stop there just for a second again to highlight how important Schiller's data is. It's publicly available. It's on his website at Yale. I use it all the time. There is a line there for the 10-year U.S. Treasury. It's a column, excuse me. And you begin you get, uh, begin to calculate based on that. And he has an inflation indicator of real returns. And it's monthly data at aggregate. And it's hard not to use if you don't have access to CRISP, if you're not an econometrician, if you're in the market as a professional and you're looking for something that has been, hey, it's a Yale professor. He won the Nobel Prize. Can't, you know, it has to be good, right? And I use it all the time. Uh, I wish he wouldn't interpolate the data monthly, but uh, that's something that can be undone. But it's really important to understand that, again, the benchmark for a lot of the systems that we investors and practitioners engage in are these are these sources of information, in this case, Schiller, in, in other cases, you're referencing Jeremy Siegel, a professor at Wharton, that they created this, but what you have done is gone back and sort of check their math. And that's really important. Or, or actually, let me build on that. I'll just one more thing about the Schiller stuff. The stock returns on the Schiller website, they're sound. Okay. I beat on them for six months. And after six months of going back to the original sources, I couldn't get them to break. Them, you know, a, a couple dozen basis points, you know, I, I, you know, I, I, took care of all the survivorship bias, all the failed railroads, all the ones that didn't pay a dividend. And his numbers were still in. good? Uh, 
budge the needle like this. Uh, it makes me feel better because, frankly, my prior three books use the Schiller stock data quite a bit. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, no. And I, now I only only beat on it up to 1897, and then I gave up because I wasn't getting anywhere. The problem is the bond data. The column is labeled 10-year treasury. There were no 10-year treasuries before uh, the, the 1920s. There were a few Civil War refinance bonds that neither Schiller nor anyone else uses because they were part of the national banking system. And, you know, they weren't bought for yield. They were bought because banks couldn't do business unless they had a bunch in their vaults. They scarcely traded at certain points. So that 10-year treasury in Schiller is municipal bonds. Worse, it's not observed municipal bonds. A fellow named Frederick Macaulay that some listeners will recognize as the person who came up with duration as a bond measure, Macaulay uh, collected some municipal bond data, waved his magic wand to correct whatever he thought needed to be corrected, and uh, that's the quote-unquote 10-year treasury. Actual bond returns uh, after the Civil War were quite a bit stronger than what you see in Schiller or Siegel's work. But Daniel, we got to start talking about dividends, okay? And that's where 1871 becomes an interesting watershed, okay? Uh, when you go further back, actually, it, it actually starts around 1900. As you go further and further back, dividends become a more and more important part of total return. Sounds very innocuous, but there's a flip side. Before 1900, if you bought a stock index, you spent all the dividends, and you held it for 10 or 20 or 30 years, you got nothing. Zero price appreciation. All the total return was in the dividends. Now, there I'm going to uh, pump my blow my horn here. This is uh, all, all the real return. All the real refer all the uh, inflation adjusted return. One of the problems with the current paradigm or regime is that investors currently, including going into their asset allocation exercise, are used to a low inflation environment or declining rate environment. That's the point of my current work. And uh, the we don't talk about real return versus nominal return last 10, 15 years. There's no real no reason to because inflation has been so low and rates coming down that they're close enough that real return and nominal return appear to be very similar. When we have, if we have a return to inflation or higher rates, that will not be the case. Therefore, it's really important, I think, investors, when they're looking back at historical returns, as your work does, and we'll reference exactly where uh, uh, listeners can, can find your work uh, later, that... Uh, it does distinguish between real returns, and mostly academics are looking at real returns, inflation-adjusted returns. True. So as we go back um, further and further into the 19th century, and this was sort of my first part of my contribution, nobody had the dividends, okay? Schiller does, because Cowles, Cowles, you know, he went back to the contemporary publications, Commercial and Financial Chronicles, some uh, listeners might recognize. And, you know, he looked at them page by page, quarter by quarter, and he got the actual dividends. He got the rights issues. He got the stock uh, dividends. He got the merger premium. He got, he got it all. Okay. For a guy who had tuberculosis and inherited a lot of money, he did a fine job with it that we, from, from tuberculosis and so went into financial research instead. So it's, who, yeah. Go figure. 
Yeah, yeah. No, he's a, uh, it just shows what a retiree can accomplish, Daniel. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, no one had the dividend data before 1871. You'd see these scattered references. In 1797, the Bank of New York paid 13%. It wasn't 13% real, but that's what the nominal value was. It would be this one little cherry just hanging on a branch. Uh, I benefited from coming late. By the time I started my work a couple of years ago, the digitization of historical newspapers was well along, okay? And again, um, you're a historian, I'm historically inclined, not all your listeners will be. So let's talk about what an 1826 newspaper looked like. It would be four pages, oh, 17 by 24 inches or something like that. So just a one huge piece of paper folded in half, six, seven, or eight columns of print. You and I would call it six-point type. God forbid you have to read something like that when you're over 40. Uh, seven-point type, seven columns, 18 inches deep. And before the internet, you could have gone to a library. You could have unloaded the huge dusty volume. You could have started looking at these newspapers and you might never have gotten to page three, column five, 15 inches down where it said, the board of directors of the Bank of Pennsylvania have declared a 3% dividend on their capital stock payable April 1st. But once it's been digitized, log on to your digital service, click dividends. And unfortunately, they used to call distributions from bankrupt estates dividends too. That was a lot of tedium, but year by year, there are only a couple dozen stocks with good trading records once you get back into the 1830s and 1820s. But year by year, I put it together. Just about all the dividends from just about all the traded uh, stocks. Uh, a little shout out here, and this data is free too. Uh, Richard Silla at uh, New York University uh, led a grant project back at the beginning of the aughts uh, before digitization. And what he found was newspapers have been publishing stock prices since the 1790s and before. And so he compiled a whole bunch of spreadsheets that I was able to stumble upon. And so now I had my price change and then I dug out the dividends and I was able to observe total return on stocks from 1793 to 1871. And uh, as you guide me with questions on the next module here, I'll be drawing on that archival research to, to answer them. And another shout out, if I may, the Commercial and Financial Chronicle, which is a uh, uh, source that doesn't exist anymore, but was for about, I think, 80 years, has been completely digitized uh, by the St. Louis Fed. If you type in Fraser, I think is the name of their uh, their database. And you can see, again, uh, the labor of love that was involved in your effort because the CFC does a fine, fine job uh, by uh, in terms of information, but you have to manually gather it. It's improved upon subsequently by standard and pores, which we were discussing in the green room before, and others, readers of my earlier works have seen their history, and particularly Moody's work in the early 20th century, where you begin to systematize the dividend data and the stock price data. But it is a, a labor of love. So as you 
extended the record back from 1926, the full record back. So the S&P, by the way, S&P index begins in 1957. Uh, those of us in the industry have access to something called CompuStat, which is basically 1962 to the present. So 1962 to the present, whatever assumptions or tests that you run and back test a particular approach to investing, stocks, bonds, types of stocks, et cetera, 1962 to the present. That's a 50-year a period, 60-year period. It's good. 57, slightly more. 1926, the big boys. Now it's been taken back maybe at the aggregate level to 1871 by uh, by uh, Bob Schiller using the calls uh, calls uh, commission data, and now you've taken it back to the very early 19th century, early uh, late 18th century with a fuller record. And what happens as a consequence of adding an extra hundred years about the assumptions that inform? the investor experience as they walk into their advisors, the computer spits out their risk profile, and they are presented with a list of uh, a asset allocation mix of 60-40, that is stocks, bonds, or some other mix, and the logical assumptions underpinning that 60-40 mix. Okay. So at least one of your audience is sitting there saying, hey, what about Siegel? What about Siegel? He had it back to 1802, didn't he? So what's this Macquarie guy done that's any different? And um, the answer here is, you know, you got to go read Siegel's academic papers. There's scarcely any footnotes in his books. But if you go read his uh, 1992 academic papers, you'll find out that he didn't observe dividends. He simply um, licked his finger, put it up in the air and said, eh, I'm thinking 6.4% looks about right. And so all that total return data uh, from Siegel before 1871 was just, um, uh, you know, dividends were just guesstimated. And uh, he, he guessed, his guess wasn't too far off on a, a arithmetic average, but it wasn't observed there. And spoiler spoiler alert, the current yield of the US stock market is 1.4%. So whether, uh, the, the uh, broader point is getting dividends was tough, Siegel guessed, but for all but the most recent period of the stock market, the yield of the market has been much, much higher than it is. We will get to that a little bit later in the show, but please continue. All right. So as I went further and further back, uh, you know, dividend payments in nominal terms were high back there in uh, the the. 1800s. Uh, and uh, price appreciation was low. And so in uh, one of the papers you'll, uh, you'll point your audience to, I have a, a chart that shows um, what percent of total return came from dividends at different junctures. And as you go back from 1871, increasingly you see that dividends account not for most or much of total return. They account for more than 100% of total return because price return, even over long periods, was negative. Okay. And that's fundamentally different from today. And uh, today's mantra is based on 1926 data in nominal terms, 40% of uh, return is uh, from the dividend, 60% from capital appreciation, nominal returns. In my world, I attribute almost all of the capital appreciation to uh, dividend growth. That's uh, my choice. And it only leaves about 10, uh, it leaves 90, 95% of total return uh, attributed to the dividends. In your world of real returns, it's again about close to 100% plus or minus because dividend growth and inflation 
over long measurement periods offset each other. So we, we get to a similar conclusion in different ways, but that's not what the client is told. The investor is told 40% from dividends, maybe you should have some, 60% from capital appreciation, you definitely want that. So there is an implication that you're coming to, and I want to make sure our listeners get to that, about your results concerning real returns, real capital appreciation, not just in the 19th century, even though that's where it's really grounded, but over these long measurement periods. That's right. So something changed after the Great Depression, and in particular after World War II. Um, if you um, uh, we're, we're sticking to the dividend topic here, if you look at uh, real price appreciation um, beginning post-war 1946, all of a sudden it's there and it goes on and on and on. So from 1946 to the mid-1960s, a lot of listeners will remember that uh, uh, 1966 date uh, as, a, as a peak year. But really from after the war to the mid-1960s, stocks pay a good dividend and they go up and they go up and they go up. That's the normal state of the world the investor thinks. Now, the 70s were not fun. Stocks stopped going up. You know, there was a sort of a, a, a real doldrums from the mid-1960s to 1982. And then stocks started going up again and up and up. But this time, more and more of the total return is from the capital appreciation. The contribution of dividends goes down and down. That 40% figure that you used, um, you can find it in one of John Bogle, uh, Bogle's works, uh, The Indexing Pioneer. Uh, mathematically, uh, I can beat on it later, but I don't think we have time. Uh, but basically, even using that measure, if you just look at the post-1982 boom years, it's 20% or less from dividends. The, to summarize your work in the 19th century, it is that it, when you extend the data sets, some of the conclusions underpinning your conversation with your financial advisor get reversed. And that is, it turns out bonds did just as well as stocks. Stocks were uh, not, didn't necessarily have the equity risk premium. Real returns were lower. These, I'm summarizing a lot of the, the points that are fascinating, contentious, but they may be, uh, they may, uh, current investors may say not that relevant. But I think it is important that our investors, uh, all investors understand that the assumption behind the capital asset pricing model and the assumption between the equity risk premium, these are inside baseball terms, are that stocks are better than bonds and consistently so. And it turns out when you look at what you refer to in your article as an out-of-sample out of test of the Siegel thesis, uh, that it, it fails because the 19th century just showed it was completely different. It should give investors uh, pause for uh, naturally assuming that the model that they're, that they're told is right. I'm not suggesting a different model. I, I do have a different model, but I'm not going to not get into that. But I'm just saying there is a history to the models, whether it's modern portfolio theory, CAPM, stocks better than bonds, equity. There's a history for that. And the history ought, ought, ought to be right. If it isn't, then the model isn't frankly as good. And, and I think your work has done uh, incredibly important to highlight the historical context of the tools that we use currently. Let's shift to the present time, meaning present time for you and me is the last 40 years. One of my points in my work is the last 40 years have been anomalous, and that's where you were heading. And I, I, can, you, can you describe from your perspective 
why the last 40 years are anomalous. And I'm going to chime in why I say that's really relevant right now to investors. Okay. So what's different is that investors learned or thought they learned that stocks always go up to higher and higher highs and uh, stocks always outperform bonds over longer terms. And, you know, kind of... uh, Basically, that's the way the world works. And, uh, you know, uh, Markowitz and Sharp, you know, they they took uh, the limited historical record uh, here in the post-1926 United States and made it into theory. Uh, you know, if you're an academic, you call that hypothesizing uh, the data, you know, make take taking a uh, taking something that was temporary and potentially transitory and, you know, making it a, a, a real theory. The now, you made a point there that um, that I'm used to dealing with, and that's today's investors listening to the show saying, well, that's very interesting, sir, about the 19th century. I hope it keeps you out of trouble. But you have to understand here, I'm managing money in 2021 and 22. Do you have anything more recent that would support uh, these points? And that's where the international data has come so far in the last uh, couple of decades, uh, beginning with uh, Dimson, Marsh, and Staunton, Triumph of the Optimist, uh, Brian Taylor, Global Financial Data, uh, pushing that for- further. European team recently pushing it further still. And so what you can find if you look internationally and you know what you're looking for is you can find multi-decade periods in markets outside the United States where the equity premium is negative for decades, okay? And so what kind of theoretical foundation, you know, kind of fails for 60 years, uh, you know, in recent history? I, I don't know. I make an argument that MPT is not right but that it was the first theory and therefore it has lived on not because it was correct, but because it was a framework that people could use. However wrong, it was a framework and it continues to be a framework. You're basically making making the same point. What has, outside the United States, real returns have been really challenged from equities, but why, do, do you have any insight? And I know this is not actually in your, your work, but it's, it's part of the thought process. Why has the last 30 years of exceptional equity returns, uh, I'm prepared to, to point to the, um, the incredible innovation of your backyard, Santa Clara, uh, Silicon Valley, they've really changed the world and they should get credit for it. But it, it really is so anomalous, not even for 200 years, I would argue, of equity returns, but echoing Getzman, Will Getzman, a prior guest and someone you know, well, really the last couple thousand years of business where you have business relationships, investment relations that are non-cash based, no dividends. That's the main anomalous factor I'm trying to get to in terms of the US stock market over the last 30, 40 years. And we've had very, very successful businesses that, that don't pay their shareholders anything how did that occur? Not not that it has occurred, because we know it has occurred, but I, I have my reasons why I think it's occurred, but surely you must have encountered that. Okay. So I'll, I'll give you, I'll, I'll point to two colleagues at Santa Clara, uh, one a mathematician, one a well-known finance professor. Uh, some will recognize uh, my colleague, Mayor Statman, uh, behavioral finance uh, person. And uh, I was talking about this once with the uh, mayor and he said, uh, well, you know, it all goes back to Miller and Modigliani in 1961. And uh, I'm a kind of a newcomer to this area. So uh, uh, he went on to explain. Uh, basically, uh, those, uh, those writers simply said investors should not rationally care 
whether they get a dividend in the hand or the same amount of capital appreciation in the stock. It's fungible. There's no difference, okay? It just doesn't matter, and I can prove it to you with equations. And so once you've got that theoretical substrate, you've got to, eventually you've got a chief financial officer somewhere saying, hmm, I don't have to pay dividends if I don't want to. That's just custom, tradition, okay? And Miller Modigliani showed me that, you know, as long as I give an appreciated stock, I don't have to pay a dividend. And sometimes it's convenient not to pay a dividend, not to give cash away, just, you know, kind of pump the price. Uh, my other colleague, Dan Ostrov, is a mathematician working now in finance and also a, a private investor, just like most of your audience. And, uh, you know, Dan said, I don't want to get a dividend. I, why would I want a dividend? Okay, it just messes up my cash flow. I don't want to pay taxes on it. I don't, you know, I don't. I, I, I'll just take the appreciation. So one possible explanation for the change, and you're absolutely on rock solid ground when you talk about how anomalous the last thirty or forty years have been. One possible explanation is that a theoretical substrate emerged that said, you know. Doesn't matter if you pay a dividend or not. Appreciation is appreciation, whether cash in hand or uh, uh, baked into the price. So there's a possible answer for you. So, and, and listeners will know, I've sent two prior podcasts going over Miller and Modigliani, why they're wrong. Now, of course, they have, in addition to being deceased, they have uh, Nobel Prizes. I do not. I can, it, we won't get into it in the weeds, but there's a very technical point in their thing that kind of disproves their, their point. When they're writing that in 1960, specifically, they companies were raising capital because of the CapEx requirements of building out the industrial plant in the United States, the post-war industrial plant. So the companies had the choice in the Miller and Modigliani model of either paying a smaller dividend or raising more dilutive capital. That has shifted. We now have the service economy. It doesn't have anywhere near the CapEx requirements. And so basically what was an exception in Miller and Modigliani, it applied to a couple percent of the universe at the time, is now 97% of you. Very few companies other than utilities and REITs operate in a negative free cash flow mode where they have the choice between the dividend or incremental capital. I simply argue that Miller and Modigliani no longer apply. However, it's too late. They have the, they have the Nobel prizes. In 1982, share uh, repurchases become much, much easier due to a change in securities law in the 1990s, they take off. So between interest rates declining over the last 30, uh, 40 years, uh, uh, share repurchases being blessed by the SEC. And as you point out, the intellectual uh, get out of jail card to not pay dividends, you have the disappearance of dividends. But uh, what I'd really want you to say, because I say it all the time, but I want someone to validate it, is how incredibly historically anomalous it is for over 200 years of, of market history to have successful businesses, not busted railroads, not bankrupt canals, not mining companies that are fictitious. These are the stuff of the 19th century. But the very large, successful businesses that now dominate the U.S. stock market, that they would not pay a dividend is historically anomalous. Will you, will you grant me that? It's a completely different world. Again, just building on what you just said, um, you know, most businesses before the Civil War were banks or insurance companies. And, you know, uh, they couldn't expand for a variety of reasons. Uh, they had good cash flow. And certainly the mindset was the only reason anyone would buy a stock would be to get a dividend. That's it, it, the whole, it, you, you know, just as, uh, you know, 
Miller and Modigliani said, well, hey, all that business about dividend, that's just a figment of your imagination. And you went to a 19th century investor and say, hey, you know, if you hold a stock long enough, it's going to increase by multiples of itself. You don't need that annual cash flow there. They would look at like you at you like you were from Mars. And then same thing with railroads as they were um, uh, built and expanded in the 1830s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. You know, success meant paying a dividend. You didn't pay a dividend. It was because you were a failure and your stock price went to, you know, kind of, you know, minuscule levels. Now, I'm going to give you a non-Miller-Modigliani possible perspective on the past 40 years. It's entirely possible that the nature of the businesses, you talked about services businesses, we can think about software businesses being uh, 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 hyper uh, services businesses. Um, the most 19th century businesses could not scale. You know, uh, the way Apple computer can go from selling uh, one computer in 1978 to millions or, you know, 5 million iPhones in 2007 to however many hundreds of millions they're going to sell this year. Uh, the way Facebook can go from uh, zero users to a billion users. That kind of scaling didn't happen for a railroad or a bank. Procter & Gamble could do a piece of it. One bar of soap, a million bars of soap, national market, 10 million bars of soap, 20 million bars of soap. Uh, and that's when you start to see price appreciation is after uh, consumer manufacturers uh, become part of the stock market. But nothing like um, a Silicon Valley type company existed uh, before the past uh, couple of decades. And one can imagine the value of a stock independent of its cash pay payments increasing by multiples and multiples and multiples, so there's your compounded returns, that just could not happen for a Procter & Gamble in 1910 or a Pennsylvania Railroad in 1880. Fair, fair enough. And world has been changed as a result of, of the technology companies and, and their scale. I would simply point out, however, that they are less capital intensive and therefore their cash flows are not necessary for the growth of their business at the current point. Instead, they're using them to buy back shares or just buy other companies. And that's where the the agency costs, which are going to shift academic frames. And, and I, as a minority investor in said companies, really have less control than I would like, uh, particularly in the age of the autocratic CEO, which we currently have, uh, pretty weak-willed boards of directors. And so for me, a dividend payment is an, a very appropriate agency mechanism to keep control as I, as a minority investor, want, have limited direct control, but the dividend helps keep me in control for a company that uh, um, I, I have a stake in. So that's that's a topic for another day. I would like to get Michael Jensen on uh, the show. I don't think I'm going to succeed. I believe he's quite elderly and I don't think he does too much of this media, but I, you know that, that that's another reason. But, but my, my main point is that uh, uh, dividends are not for successful businesses. The fact that large successful businesses don't pay dividends, highly unusual. We are, you use the term regime change. You point out regime change in 1946, 1982, regime changes at various points of the depression in the late 19th century. I'm pla planting a stake in the ground and saying regime change 2020, 2021, 2022, not because of COVID, but because interest rates have stopped going down. May go up, may not go up. There are plenty of countries where they didn't go up, they just stayed low. But the likelihood of interest rates in the United States continuing to go down appears to be low. There are reason to believe they may go up, but they're probably not going to go down. And that that could 
create the type of regime change that you have identified at various points in history that might affect capital allocation, uh, uh, investor perceptions, corporate behavior. Okay. Now, it, to um, to give you one more challenge to sharpen your viewpoint, uh, Daniel, um, the uh, I think you know um, I would uh, not be surprised if your prediction came true. I have no problem with it whatsoever. And one of the reasons it could be uh, earth-shaking is because there aren't too many investors alive today that remember a climate where interest rates go up, up, up. That's all been forgotten. That just doesn't happen. Okay. But leaving that aside for a moment, a fellow I meant to mention to you in our email exchanges uh, just started publishing recently. His name is uh, Paul Schmelzing. And Schmelzing is going to argue, uh, I won't say against your position, but somewhat athwart of it, okay? And what he's done is he has an eight-century history of interest rates in the developed world. And, you know, he's, he's basically done Homer and Silla, you know, one or two better. And Schmelzing's argument is that the ability to attract partic- extract particularly safe income has been falling for 800 years, okay? Now, he might acknowledge regimes, sub-regimes within the 800-year trend, but basically his argument, as I understand it, is that, you know, right now, you know, folks like you that have to manage money for a living, you're looking at negative uh, nominal interest rates in Europe, negative real interest rates uh, everywhere. People are tearing out their hair. My God, how, I, how can I get a return? I'd like some safe income. I used to be able to buy a treasury 10-year bond, make three, four, five, six percent Now, the other year, I was making fractional 1%. And Smeltzing says that's an 800-year arrow that's been heading in that direction for 800 years. Rates, or we'll call it safe income, have been falling. Now, I call it a thwart to the position that you want to hold because if safe income goes away, the need for income doesn't go away. So we start turning to risky income. And that itself may fuel the comeback of dividend payments uh, that you're forecasting there. But I did. I think it's it was useful for me to understand that negative real interest rates, uh, they didn't start last year or this decade. Uh, they've been coming for a while and, um, and the trend line is intact. So Schmelzing's argument would be, well, yeah, you might see a change in dividends, Daniel, but you're going to see safe government bond income continue to be down in the ditch forever, except for temporary reversals. Okay. Now, again, uh, you'll you'll read his stuff and you'll make what you will of it, but I thought that was worth throwing in here. It sounds like we have uh, the next guest for Keep Calm and Carry On. Uh, as for this guest, I want to thank uh, thank you, Edward Macquarie, a retired professor of Santa Clara University. Uh, can you uh, let uh, uh, listeners know where your work can be uh, found, and both on your website and what SSRN, SSRN is briefly? Good. So Social Science Research Network, SSRN.com. Stick it in your browser. Uh, it's an academic repository, mostly preprints, uh, lots of working papers. Uh, once you have an end to the game, um, you know, I write my paper, I perfect it as much as I want, I press a button, 
I'm live, I'm published. So simply go to ssrn.com, um, enter my last name, spelling should be on Daniel's website, and um, you'll see a series of uh, articles. Uh, the one we've mostly been talking about is stocks for the long run. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Edward, for for being uh, a guest on my show. It's been very enthusiastic. <laughs> it's been very exciting for me to have you and and uh, to have another very historically oriented finance person on the show. So thank you so much. And thank you, Daniel, for inviting me.